0: Good morning. Good morning I love the the lyrics of this psalm. we just sang uh, the the the, uh, the ends of all earth shall hear both rich and poor, both bond and free shall worship him on bended knee, and children's children shall proclaim the glorious honor of his name. Indeed, that is the focus of this sermon and uh was the was the uh meditation of my heart as as I was preparing it. Our sermon text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and then chapter 4, verse 2. These are the words of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would come now and be our helper, that you would teach us and you would instruct us, that you would guide us. We ask that you would use your word to make us more and more into the image of your son, our Lord Jesus. Help us and strengthen us specifically as it regards to worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week we continue our series on biblical parenting. And we began by looking at the glory of biblical parenting which highlighted the privilege and the blessing of parenting in God's wise plan for his creation. We then looked at the blueprint for biblical parenting where Pastor Allen applied the process of building a house to raising children, how we lay the foundation, how we build the framework, and how we finish the project. After that, we looked at the context of biblical parenting, which is a godly household founded on biblical rules that both train and test our children and last week we considered the importance of laying the foundation in the early years this week we'll be looking at the lifeblood of biblical parenting which is family worship the reason family worship is the lifeblood of biblical parenting is rooted in the ultimate goal of parenting namely to raise up worshipers To use more specific biblical categories, we are raising up the next generation of priests, kings, and prophets. Priests who, like their great high priest, offer up themselves and their sacrifice of praise to the Father through the Son and by His Spirit. Kings and queens who rule and reign over the earth as intended by God's original design. And prophets who faithfully bring to bear God's word on every aspect of his world. Now, as is obvious, our text does not contain an explicit command for family worship, nor is there any Bible verse that says, Do family worship, and here's how. But this is not abnormal. There are many things that Scripture does not state explicitly, but have nevertheless been determined throughout the history of the church as normal, right, and good. The Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1.4 states this clearly. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. But the fact that it's not laid down expressly can make it difficult to do, especially if it's not something that someone has been exposed to before uh, or is has been taught. And not knowing what to do or how to do it can easily lead to its neglect. Having not been raised in homes that practiced family worship, I can remember my own and my wife's confusion when we were first exposed to it. And it took a lot of time to figure out something that would work in our family with, with young children. And so this sermon is going to be a little bit more practical, especially towards the end, uh, than normal. And I don't just want to teach about worship, especially family worship, although I will do that. But I also want to put resources into your hands that will hopefully make it more feasible and enjoyable and regular in our homes. Although family worship is not expressly set down in Scripture, it might as well be. A brief look at the family and liturgical lives of both Israel under the Old Covenant and the commands given to the New Testament church will make it clear that family worship is presupposed and built into the covenantal life of Israel and the church. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which we recite every Lord's day, has functioned almost like a base camp in this series. I'm pretty sure it's popped up in every sermon. And I want to follow suit and review this text briefly to highlight the foundational nature of what we're actually doing in parenting. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your homes when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's not hard to see how central this creed was for the formation, the paideia, as a word we've been using throughout this series, of Israelite children. Morning to evening was to be saturated with intentional instruction on God's works, God's word, and God's ways. You might say that it's the Old Testament equivalent of a popular phrase that's used in our circles, all of Christ for all of life. And while the creed is straightforward enough, there's an interesting feature to the command to teach when it says teach them to your children that doesn't necessarily come through in the English. First, the Hebrew word that's translated teach might better be rendered or uh, translated recite or repeat. You shall recite them to your children when you sit in your homes, etc. But there's imagery attached to this Hebrew word, which is shenin, that gives us further insight into what we're actually doing in parenting. The root of this word can also be translated as sharp or sharpen, if used as a verb. And it's almost always used to refer to weaponry. A couple of examples. Deuteronomy 32, 41, where God says, if I sharpen, there's that word, my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Psalm 140, when describing evil and violent men, says in verse 3, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. More importantly, in Psalm 45, describing the great king, says in verse 6, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And this is directly related to us. Psalm 127, verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a great reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. The Bible tells us about the world as it really is. And this reminds us that we've been caught up in the great war between the seed of the serpent and the victorious seed of the woman. And so if our children are weapons and worship is warfare, then our homes are armories where the weapons of our warfare are forged and formed. We are, in fact, and in more than one way, raising up sharp Young men and women. If Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us the what of Christian paideia, our sermon text tells us more explicitly the how, and most importantly, the goal of Christian formation. And our text starts with the latter. The goal of all Christian paideia and formation is this let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the goal. This is the telos, the ultimate purpose of all the Spirit's work in us, which we are called to work out of ourselves in faith. This is an interesting phrase that Paul uses here, word of Christ, as opposed to the more common word of the Lord or word of God that we find in the New Testament. This phrase, word of Christ, likely has multiple shades of meaning that include the message about Christ, the message that Christ proclaimed, And most importantly, the person of Christ himself, who dwells in us by the bond of the Holy Spirit. I like the way one specific commentator put it. This phrase, word of Christ, is everything left behind and conveyed to his church as his legacy. We might say that for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly is the same as being filled with the Spirit. To walk according to the Spirit as he did, and be constantly refocused by the Spirit to the words and the works and the person of Christ. It's important to keep in mind that it's not a generic righteousness or a generic wisdom that we're after for both ourselves and our children. It's Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's wisdom that God the Spirit is working through us in word and sacrament and through our liturgical and devotional lives. And the good news is, and this goes back to a point that Pastor Allen made in his first sermon, is that as we instruct and train, the word of Christ dwells richly in us as well. Now, in order for formation or paideia to be distinctly and truly Christian, it must necessarily include three inseparable and fundamental elements. The three Ps of distinctly Christian paideia flow naturally from this text. They are pedagogy, praise, and prayer. We see Paul's instruction on pedagogy when he says here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now the teaching here is likely echoing back to the passage in Deuteronomy, but the mention of wisdom also recalls the proverbial wisdom of Solomon. And this isn't merely the downloading of information, which is a temptation to, and and I think sometimes how we often think about teaching in our day and age. This is teaching about how to be, how to understand God and his world so that we might more faithfully inhabit it. As one of my favorite authors puts it, it is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. That is what we are teaching our children. And paideia is formation in wisdom, which is the art of skillful and beautiful living. The book of Proverbs, which is a, 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 a writing from a king to his son, opens up with its express intent. It tells us exactly what it's for in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 1. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man discretion and knowledge. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain counsel. And the beginning of all of this instruction is the fear of the Lord. But beginning here is not the start of something that's left behind. It means something much more like first and controlling principle. Because the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning, but the end as well. As Ecclesiastes 12:13 says, the end of the matter all has been heard fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. But the Bible isn't all wisdom literature. The vast majority of the Bible is narrative, stories of real history where we see the good, the bad and the ugly. And this is important because narrative is fundamental to our existence. You can't answer the most basic questions of life without immediate recourse to story. The questions, where did we come from, why are we here, where are we going, are all answered most fundamentally by telling a story. And biblical history gives us the true narrative of the world, the story of God's acts in history, which then shape our understanding of how to live in God's world And both proverbial wisdom and narrative assist us in doing the second thing that Paul instructs, admonishing. Admonishing is basically warning. And the brilliance of the Proverbs is it basically lays out two opposite paths, the path of wisdom and the path of folly. Very simple concepts that can be understood by young children. And the Proverbs tell us very clearly that the path of wisdom is the path of life and honor, blessing, fruitfulness, and joy. And the path of folly is death, dishonor, poverty, loneliness, and despair. And we are called to regularly put these two paths in front of our children and plead with them to choose life, just as our father does with his children and teaching the stories only reinforces this it gives us real world examples by which we can show them the different the way that these different paths take shape and what they lead to you see what adam did here what happened here you see what david did here what happened here and so on all of our teaching and admonishing is done with the goal of forming people through wisdom and narrative and instruction ...into faithful inhabitants of both God's word and God's world. We are training up our children to inhabit the story of the Bible... ...and become faithful covenant partners with God... ...in in His story of the creation, redemption, and consummation of the entire cosmos. When we consider that the goal of Paideia is the formation of the whole person... ...Paul's seamless move to singing here makes sense... And it brings us to the second P of Christian Paideia. Praise. As Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The rich dwelling of the word of Christ in the body of Christ occurs in the form of teaching and admonishing, which cannot be separated from singing the psalms and other hymns. I said that these three elements of Christian Paideia are inseparable. And we can see that if we look at the most basic reality of what a psalm is. The Psalter makes up a significant portion of God's holy word. And so it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's instructive and useful for our pedagogy. We teach and we preach on the psalms. But a psalm is a song. It's a musical composition intended to be sung. William Law, who was a priest in the Church of England in the 18th century, said this. If you were to tell a person that has any common song in front of them, that he need not sing it, that it was sufficient to peruse it, he would wonder what what you mean and would think you're absurd. As if you were telling him to only look at his food to see whether it was good, but need not eat it. Psalms are meant to be sung. But a psalm is also a prayer. The psalms repeatedly refer to themselves as prayers. Psalm 72, which closes the second book of the Psalter, ends with these words The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And again, I say all this to emphasize that these three elements of Paideia are inseparable which is understood at the most basic level of what a psalm is, and it stresses the importance of singing in formation. Chapter 9 of The Magician's Nephew is titled The Founding of Narnia, and it opens up with these words. The lion, that's Aslan, of course, was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard in the ruffling of the grass, The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Lewis here is tapping into some deep magic. And something that uh, many biblical scholars have recognized about Genesis chapter 1. We often say that God spoke the universe into existence. But it would be more appropriate to say that God sung the universe into existence. To quote one scholar, Genesis 1 is unique in the Old Testament. It invites comparison with the Psalms that praise God's work in creation. It is indeed a great hymn, setting out majestically the omnipotence of the creator. Another commentator calls it a majestic, festive overture. The world begins in music. And the world ends in music, and eternity will be filled with the perfect harmonious melody of all creation, perfectly celebrating and, and, and praising the glory of our triune God. Music is the secret to all reality. Everything is vibrating in its own pitch, and every part of created reality sings its melody as it, as it contributes to the great harmony of the cosmos. We see this idea reinforced in just the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2. I find it fascinating, and by that I just mean delightful, that the first recorded human speech in the Bible is a song. When Adam is resurrected from his death sleep, the first thing he sees is his new bride, his glory, and he sings a song over her. And here Adam is acting like his father, Yahweh, who sings over his people his heavenly bride Zephaniah 3:17 The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love he will exult over you with loud singing It's interesting how swiftly Paul moves from the word of Christ dwelling richly in us to the singing of psalms and this is because while the apostles While recognizing the original author of the Psalms, often interpret the Psalms as ultimately the words of Christ or words about Christ. Peter's sermon at Pentecost demonstrates this clearly. Listen to how Peter argues in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 33. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, now, now Peter's going to quote from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter takes a psalm written by David in the first person and places it directly on the lips of Christ. The Spirit speaking in David was using David's life and words to tell a story that would be ultimately and fully true of David's son and David's Lord. But it's not just Christ's voice that's heard in the Psalms. Because and only because we are in union with Christ, the words of the Psalms can rightfully be placed on our lips as well. St. Augustine expresses this truth beautifully in one of his letters. He's discussing Psalm 119.85, which says, The unjust have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. Now, this is obviously most fully true of Christ. These words belong on his lips. Yet it's nonetheless true of all of Christ's people who have been unjustly persecuted in and for him. Christ gives us his very own words in these psalms, and the singing of these words expresses most fully our union with him. Augustine then comments, he says, But let us who are now the body of Christ, acknowledge our voice in the psalm and say to him, the unjust have dug pitfalls for me, but they do not live according to your law, O Lord. He goes on, as I journey through it, that is the Psalter, breathing hard in the sweat of our human condemnation, Christ meets me everywhere in those books, everywhere in those scriptures, in their open spaces and in their secret haunts. He sets me on fire with a desire that comes from having no little difficulty in finding him. But that only makes me eager to clutch whatever I find, to soak it deep into my bones, and to hold it close for my salvation. There was a popular Latin motto during the early Reformation that we ought to take up and make our own. Semper in ore salmus, semper in corde Christus. Always a psalm in the mouth, always Christ in the heart. There has been plenty of ink spilled on what Paul meant by hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, I think the the most compelling argument is that the the division between hymns and spiritual songs might be understood this way. There are parts of the New Testament that most scholars believe were originally hymns that were sung. Some of the most common examples are Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 Colossians 1:15 through 20 and John chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 so paul likely would be referring to explicit hymns that functioned like creeds and then eventually became a part of the new testament spiritual songs is a little bit more ambiguous but i think we find precedent of something that embodies the same meaning in scripture every time god accomplishes a mighty act in scripture It's almost always followed by a song that celebrates the victory. Think of the song of Moses after the Exodus, or the song of Deborah after the defeat of Jabin, or the tremendous musical ensemble that's formed by David when the ark is brought in to Jerusalem. All of these songs, uh, uh, all of these are songs that elaborate on God's faithfulness and how he's done some new thing. Some new act of redemption that moves his salvation history along. We might call these new songs, which we see prescribed throughout scripture. The first time we see this command is in Psalm 33 verse 3. Sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully on the harp of ten strings with loud shouts. What's interesting is that this psalm follows Psalm 32. Which is the first explicit and thorough psalm that describes the healing and the joy that comes from the forgiveness of sins? Redemption and resurrection requires new songs to tell new stories in a higher octave. We also see this in Revelation 5 9, where the twenty four elders representing the church all bow down before the Lamb and sing what? A new song. The details the specifics of this slain lamb and his paschal victory and his reign with his saints over all the earth. And of course, every Sunday, we close by singing a new song to the Lord. Not new in content, but new in the sense of God's faithfulness throughout a new week. So again, and this is speculative somewhat, but uh, we're not given an explanation, but I I think that the the hymns would have been referring to those creedal hymns that became New Testament texts, while spiritual songs would likely refer to what we consider hymns. Songs that the church following the 24 elders has composed to sing the glories of our holy and praiseworthy God. Either way, we have 2,000 years of new songs to sing, along with the 150 songs that God wrote for us, and we should put them to use in our homes. It's worth taking just a moment to to think about what singing actually is. Think about what's happening when we sing. Speech is the overflow of the heart, as Jesus tells us in Luke 6.45. It's the expression of what's really inside a person. And song is glorified speech. What's actually taking place when the body of Christ is singing is that all of our unique voices are gathered together in one voice without losing our distinctness. And that one voice is Christ's voice. Our words are glorified together in the glorified word, our Lord Jesus. Notice the rich connection between singing and the life of the body of Christ that Paul makes in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our singing is a real display of our union with one another in Christ and is the musical expression of what our lives together ought to look like. Before we move on, I want to offer a word of encouragement. For many of us, especially men, singing may not come naturally. It may feel like a chore. But like anything else that's important in life, the more that we do it, the better we get. And the better we get, the more enjoyable it becomes And I honestly say this from personal experience as someone who has no background in music and can't sing very well. You can ask any of these patient saints that sit over here in this area. I usually spend about two verses trying to do the bass line and then give up and go to the melody. We have a tremendous treasure chest in this church of musicians and talent. We have a chief musician in our elder, Casey Christopher, who wants nothing more than to help us grow in our ability to sing. We're spoiled with talented singers and musicians who can help us get better. We have psalm sings once a month. I'm asking you to take advantage of these things. Come to the next psalm sing. Start practicing at home. If you aren't musically inclined and it doesn't come naturally, commit to trying something new to get better. Before we skip down to chapter 4 verse 2, it's worth noting that the verses in between are all instructions to each person in the household. Wives, husbands, children, father, bondservants, and masters. I point this out to simply reinforce that our sermon texts are the bookends of daily family life in the New Covenant family. And Paul here gives us the third P of Christian Paideia. In chapter 4, verse 2, prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We've looked at how both our teaching and admonishing as well as our singing is formative. And prayer is just as, as formative. It's not just our prayers for our children that shape them, though that is our greatest hope. Teaching them to pray is essential if they are going to grow into their full stature in Christ. I started to write down everything that I wanted to say about prayer, and it turned into a whole nother sermon. So now you'll, you know what I'll be preaching on next. That said, there's a couple of important things that we can highlight about prayer. If we just look at the Lord's Prayer, we realize how indispensable prayer is. We can't afford to raise children who don't have prayer as a second language. Our primary responsibility is to make prayer second nature for them. But they must be taught. We must give them the words and the tone and the posture until it becomes their own natural posture. One of the main ways they learn to seek the kingdom of God first is by praying every day, Thy kingdom come. And we often get that backwards, as if you have to feel the emotion before you pray it. That's wrong. We don't shape the petitions, the petitions of the Lord's prayer shape us. If we want our children to depend on God for all of their provisions, if we want confession of sins to be regularly on their lips, if we want them to plead with God to protect and deliver them, we need to give them the language that becomes instinctive for them. Paul says, be watchful in prayer, as in be alert, sober-minded, and awake. And he reinforces the fact that both prayer and singing are the most important ways to give thanks to God. Of all the, of all the qualities that we should strive to cultivate in our children, thankfulness ought to be at the very top. After corporate Lord's Day worship, there is no better way to build thankfulness into the hearts of our children than by daily praying and singing with them. And so pray in front of them, model it for them, and teach them to pray. They will pick it up. Jesus, the one that we imitate in our parenting, if you remember, that was the first sermon text that Pastor Allen preached on, does all of these things with his disciples. He teaches his disciples, he sings with his disciples, and he prays with and for his disciples. And if we want to see how important these things really are to Jesus, we need to look no further than his final days, especially as recounted by John's gospel. He goes to the upper room and gives them an extended discourse about himself, his father, and his spirit, and how his disciples are to live in the world once he's gone. After the Lord's Supper, John tells us, they sang a hymn. And lastly, he retreats to the garden in Gethsemane, not only to pray himself, but the whole account stresses the importance of his disciples entering into prayer with him. Every culture is formed most fundamentally by what it worships and how it worships. The culture of the church is shaped by Lord's Day covenant renewal worship. But the vision that the Bible gives us is one where that culture flows out into the world and makes glorious everything that it comes into contact with. And the first place those waters flow through are our homes. The hope and goal is that this culture shapes the culture of our homes through family worship. And so let them be filled with the pedagogy, praise, and prayer of our covenant life. As we wrap up, or before I wrap up, I should say, I wanted to briefly review the handouts in your bulletin. Um, there's two. Um, again, the, the goal of this is really, like I said earlier, to put resources in your hands that will hopefully make family worship easier, more enjoyable, help get you started. Um, this, first, uh, this first liturgy is um, it's a short liturgy. It's, it's actually for family with small children. Um, you'll notice that it has all three of these elements. It has instruction, it has singing, and it has prayer. If you follow this through, you would sing the Gloria Patri and the doxology and a psalm or a hymn uh, each time. Um, there's a, you know, it's the celebrant and the respondents. So a parent, father or a parent would be the celebrant and the rest of the family would respond um, and it is a, it's, it's a wonderful little little liturgy. It has prayer with the, the Lord's prayer in it. Um, you'll notice at the bottom I, I put um, an asterisk for hands raised. I just wanted to uh, make a brief comment about that. I know the raising of our hands can it, it might be awkward if you uh, if you may come from a charismatic background or sometimes in evangelical circles it, you don't know when to raise your hands and, and it can be kind of weird. I, I remember feeling that way. Uh, we lift our hands because we're priests. This is a priestly function. I put uh, a couple of verses there that you can see, but raising our hands is a priestly function, and it's something that God commands His priests to do. But not only that, we are a resurrected people. We start off corporate worship by lifting our hearts to the Lord. We lift our eyes to the Lord, from whence comes our helps. We lift our voices to the Lord. And we lift our hands to the Lord. These are all ways that we put on display for each other and for our children that we truly are a resurrected people. And so um, this liturgy is actually taken from an app. The second page that I have is just a list of resources that I wanted to share. These have been really helpful for me. Um, We have the two, uh, two hymnals there. The treasury is the one that we use every Lord's Day. There's also the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Um, that was really helpful for us as we started to do family worship. The tunes are a little bit easier um, and slower. Uh, it's got all 150 psalms, uh, a ton of um, hymns, and uh, again, they've just been helpful for us. Um, the Sing Your Part app. If you don't have Sing Your Part on your on your phone or on a tablet, download that. You can sing. All of these psalms, it plays the music for you in the four different parts. You can s- slow the tempo down. Or you can speed it up. Um, it's a wonderful help in terms of practice. Uh, the Trinity Psalter Hymnal has an app as well. And then this liturgy was actually taken from this daily office app. Um, and it's actually uh, really helpful because there's actually four liturgies throughout the day for morning, noon, evening, and then late evening. And there's liturgies for families with small children and then, um, and then older children as well. And then uh, the Daily Prayer app is another one, similar in content. Uh, it's just a little bit different format. There's some books down here uh, that have been really helpful for me. Um, one, one I wanted to highlight was this one, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a liturgy for daily worship. Uh, I'm sorry, not that one, uh, that one too, but um, Be Thou My Vision by Jonathan Gibson. Um, it's, a, it's, it's similar to this liturgy. Um, it's got a lot more content in it. It has a lot more prayers from the history of the church. Uh, it's got um, different creeds and confessions that you can confess with your family. Um, and it's, and it's, it's 1 through 31, so it's 31 days of liturgies to use in family worship. And then it looks like he's coming out with two for the season of uh, uh, Christmas and for the season of Easter. And so um, one of those is already out. And then lastly, some psalms to start with. These are psalms that we, uh, the first two are songs that we sing regularly, Psalm 117 and Psalm 134. Those are wonderful psalms that your kids will pick up very quickly. um, And you can sing them at breakfast or at dinner or before bed or during family worship. Um, Wonderful songs. And then the other two psalms are psalms that I love to sing in my home. Again, they're very easy to sing. They're beautiful Um, Beautiful in content, and so um, just wanted to put a couple there. That said, I I do present all of this to you in love and with the hope of the glory of your families and your children uh, for the sake of God and for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.